Good evening. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm director of the Hellenic Observatory here at the LSE. Tonight's lecture is part of our public lecture series, which is hosted with the National Bank of Greece. The series, as you can imagine, is normally held in Athens, uh, but for obvious reasons, we've become virtual. We're very grateful to the National Bank of Greece uh, for our collaboration, and we look forward to the continuation of this public lecture series uh, when we can meet again in Athens. And let me thank uh, NBG's chair, Kostas Mikhailidis, and its CEO, Pavlos Milonas, uh, for their commitment to this public lecture uh, series. This academic year, as part of the NBG LSE series, we've already hosted my colleagues Andres Rodriguez Pose. And in the new year, we'll be welcoming Ricky Burdett and Oriana Bandera. Their range of topics is as impressive as their academic expertise. You can find the full details of this public lecture series uh, on the websites of the LSE Hellenic Observatory. Tonight, we're delighted to welcome Professor Sir Tim Besley. Tim is a school professor of economics and political science, and also the W. Arthur Lewis Professor of Development Economics here at the LSE. His titles indicate his cross-disciplinary uh, range, linking the economic to the political. Tim has a number of uh, positions. He's a member of the UK's National Infrastructure Commission, He's a past president of the Econometric Society, a fellow of the British Academy, a foreign honorary member of the American Economic Association and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His CV is long and very impressive. Tim's chosen topic tonight is trust, resilience and the effectiveness of government, lessons from the COVID crisis. These are themes, of course, that underlay so much of our international discussion in recent times. Can our public institutions deliver? Are they stymied by a lack of public trust? Are they resilient to pressure? And can they cope in a crisis? Wherever we look, it seems, we find the resonance of these kinds of issues. In a different context, in the UK, Brexit is said to have impacted on levels of public trust and on whether the national civil service can deliver the public goods. For the European Union, uh, it's launching its European Recovery Fund on the assumption that member states have administrations that can deliver efficiently and free from corruption. This year, of course, issues like effectiveness and trust have become central to our discussions on how governments can manage the COVID-19 pandemic. After Tim has given his lecture, as chair, I'll follow up uh, with some questions of my own. It seems to raise questions of a different kind. Is there something different about public trust and government effectiveness when dealing with a public health crisis? Certainly the issues that Tim is raising have a special poignancy in the Greek context. The country, of course, has come through the mother of all debt crises, 
the Eurozone established a new conditionality on Greece for its three bailout programs. And a major concern was how effectively Greece would be able to implement the reforms demanded of it. So much of the conditionality was devoted to the reform of public administration in Athens. And yet, this year, Greece has seemingly managed the pandemic much better than most, at least in its first wave. Seemingly, experts were trusted, coordination between institutions was achieved, and the public good was secured. A system often identified with a lack of trust and a lack of resilience to political pressures actually delivered effective government in the middle of a crisis. So to discuss Tim's lecture, we therefore invited two of Greece's most senior social scientists to discuss how Tim's argument fits the Greek case. Professor Maria Petmizidou is Professor Emerita of Social Policy at Democritus University in Greece. She's a, a leading voice on comparative social policy, health and social care, as well as on issues such as poverty and social inclusion. Professor Dimitris Sotiropoulos is Professor of Political Science at the University of Athens. He's been a visiting fellow at the LSE, Oxford, Sciences Po, Harvard, Princeton, and Tufts. He's also an LSE alumnus. He's written extensively on governance and political culture in Southern Europe and the Balkans. In this lecture series, we often welcome many of our alumni and the LSE Alumni Association in Greece is one of our largest and most active. And I know that many of you are joining us uh, from Greece today, from the association. Many of you are also joining us as part of the network of the National Bank of Greece. Others are joining us from other countries. You're all very welcome. We invite our audience to comment on the discussion the lecture and the discussion as we proceed using Twitter. And we suggest you use the hashtag LSECOVID19. LSE, the hashtag LSECOVID19. Today's lecture is also being live streamed on Facebook and a podcast will be made available uh, subsequently. Later, I'll be inviting our audience to put your questions using the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom screen or using the comment function if you're following this as a live stream on Facebook. Please send us your questions at any time. But please, as chair, let me ask you, if you are sending questions, to keep those questions very short so that I can read them easily and we can get through as many questions as possible. We look forward to your uh, input. But to, to get us started, let me then now uh, pass over uh, to Tim. Tim, it's a great pleasure uh, to have you speaking to us on such an important topic this evening. Let me pass over to you and then we'll pursue the discussion afterwards. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Kevin. And it's wonderful to be here this evening. Um, with one important caveat that I would much rather be with you in Athens than sitting here in London. And I don't say that just because we've got a particularly miserable and rainy day, probably that pales 
that is uh, probably much less uh, enjoyable than, than, than uh, being in Athens. Uh, but also, as Greece is always one of my favorite places, and I spent, luckily, uh, in the summer, I spent a week in Corfu and a week in Crete uh, during the summer. So, uh, and uh, economists often measure things in willingness to pay. And I spent a, a week in Crete, even though I would, knew I would have to isolate for 14 days after I returned back to London. It was worth every, uh, every day in isolation. Um, this evening, I'm going to talk about some uh, things I think I know about and some much more speculative things that, that we're all learning as we live through this quite, quite remarkable crisis. I have a bit of a life both as a policymaker and as an academic, and I'm going to play very much more the role of an academic than a policymaker. But what do I mean by that? Well, I always think that what academics want are really important and interesting questions. And uh, what policymakers want are really important and interesting answers. Um, so this evening, I'm afraid you're going to get rather more questions than answers. Uh, but I think that's befitting of what we're living through when there are so many bewildering and, uh, and uh, unique uh, features to, to this particular episode. And the question I think that Kevin uh, raised about how different is this from things we thought we understood uh, is one of the themes I'm going to uh, that's going to run through what I say. Um, I spent quite a lot of my life, particularly the last, uh, uh, say, 15 years of my life, worrying a lot about this question, which surprisingly, as an economist, has had uh, not as much analysis as you might have thought it would have. Economists uh, very much view themselves as um, architects who think about what good policies are, but rarely have they thought hard about how do you actually get good policies to happen. And what makes government effective is not just having good blueprints for policy, but also uh, understanding ways to make things actually deliver uh, in practice. And that's um, really a topic on the borders between politics and economics, uh, the field we often call political economy. And there are sort of two broad aspects of government effectiveness that get explored. One, which is, I think, entirely in the comfort zone of economists, which is looking at the role of institutional arrangements, what Douglas North famously called the rules of the game, the things, the way we design, whether it be political institutions or central banks or administrative institutions, uh, what are the rules by which they work and how do we staff them and so forth. The, the part that I think is harder for economists, but we've been dragged somewhat kicking and screaming into thinking about it, is the role of values and culture. Um, and it's become a much more central topic, much even more recently than the study of political economy. And that's where the trust component of what I'm going to talk about uh, comes in in thinking about trust as a sort of value and uh, differences in trust as being partly cultural, but not exclusively so. And I'll come to, to how I think about that. And the COVID crisis brings an, provides an opportunity for investigating the effectiveness of government or thinking about the effectiveness of government. Uh, but the jury is very much still out on the factors that help, have helped to make public responses effective. Indeed, we don't really know yet, and we won't know for a while, whether there are real lessons about um, what it is uh, uh, that, that varies across countries that mean that in, apparently some countries have, have, have uh, experienced the disease in a more benign way than others. And I include in that not just 
um, the progression of the disease itself, but also the social and economic impacts. But it's going to be some time before we really understand this. So I'm going to discuss some background issues, um, some things that I say I think I've un understood from my past research. And I'm going to report a little bit on ongoing research, which I think illustrates some of the themes. Uh, and I'm going to organize around these themes of, of trust and resilience. There are many other aspects I could have focused on, but those are the two I decided would be most appropriate, uh, given what we're living through. Um, there are sort of two pillars of, from a sort of political economy perspective, I always think there's two pillars of policy responsiveness. Uh, and there's two roles of politics. One is politics as aggregation, finding a way of reconciling competing views. And we've seen a lot of that in the crisis. Um, how do we uh, put together the different forms of expertise, uh, both medical scientists, epidemiologists and others? So we have to have a, a mechanism for reconciling competing views. And of course, that's what politics has to do. It has to think about the interests of different groups. Uh, again, in the crisis, the interests of the young versus the interest of the, the old, and particularly the vulnerable old, has been a huge issue. And again, we look to politics to find ways to try and make that reconciliation work. And then there are things like regional differences. This has been a crisis that has had very different impact in different places. And again, we look to politics to reconcile that. So that's kind of one role that politics plays that's important in the crisis. The other is politics as accountability. And we're going to have, we're not there yet. I mean, this is something again, that's going to play out. How are the people who make the decisions that affect our lives, either rewarded or sanctioned for those decisions? And there's a real asymmetry there between, for example, the role of experts, who are rarely directly or even indirectly sanctioned for the advice they give. At the end of the day, it's the political process that's likely to play the role in deciding whether those who've navigated their way through this are, um, are held to account and in what way they're held to account. Uh, and of course, periodic elections are a big part of this, but, but scrutiny by media and civil society is also important. And I'll come back to the media angle a little later in my remarks. Um, if we back up com completely to a much bigger picture question, one of the things I've been very interested in when I think about government effectiveness are what I think of as two broad views of social order. Uh, and, and in some ways, I'm, uh, I'm a newly converted uh, person to view two. I mean, view one was the one I think I, as an economist and a technocrat for many years, I subscribed to. But really what, what uh, effective government was about was giving the right kinds of power, maybe appropriately constrained by institutions, but the right kind of power, uh, coercive power to the state. And that if you had the right structure of coercive power, the state would be an effective institution for dealing with anything put to it. For example, a pandemic. Um, and uh, this comes from a very old view. I think of it going back at least to Hobbes, but I'm sure it's, uh, you can go back into the ancient Greeks in particular to see these ideas. Um, that this is the solution to an otherwise anarchic uh, possibility. So that what, when we think about what makes government effective, it's how we build a, more, a stronger, more assertive state. A second view, which has always been out there, but I think has been rarely embraced by economists, and I've only embraced in my work relatively recently, is a much more social contractarian view. That the really effective states are those that elicit a sense of voluntary compliance through a sense of shared obligation. That uh, really, when you look at modern societies, 
uh, and the way they try and deal with social problems is not so much by having top-down solutions, it's by getting citizens working together um, to try and solve those problems collectively. And of course, you'll recognize that in the current crisis, that's incredibly important. Many of the things that we've been trying to do to navigate our way through the crisis have been to inculcate a sense of, of obligation on behalf of citizens to restrain from regular forms of activity, not mixing in public, uh, being responsible when visiting their elderly relatives and so forth. And on this view, the contractarian view, the strength of the state really is about inculcating civic mindedness. Now, I don't, I've come to believe these are not, uh, these are not views we should necessarily juxtapose. There's elements of, of truth in both views. But I think it's important when we, when we think about the capacity of the state and the effectiveness of the state in the crisis, that we particularly see both of these dimensions at work. Um, and a feature of the crisis, again, I'll come back to Kevin's question, what, what's different this time? Um, uh, uh, I think um, uh, when, we, when we've looked at classical questions, we generally begin with a notion when we talk about state effectiveness of what works, what makes the state work relative to an objective we might define for the state to deliver. And I'm going to argue in a minute that this is particularly a difficult issue in the crisis where I don't think we have a clear answer to that question. But normally we begin with a notion. We want the state to deliver education to our citizens or build roads or control inflation. We have a kind of clear idea. And then the question is to work out the framework that will make that deliver. Um, but the answers are rarely clear cut. Uh, and a good example of that, there is a raging debate that's nowhere near being uh, resolved about whether democracy is good for anything, pretty much, in terms of outcomes. Is it good for growth? Is it good for your health? Is it good for your well-being? I don't think we really know. I doubt there's an answer to that question, but that's another debate which we could come back to. But the point is, um, generally, we think of framing the question of government effectiveness around well-defined uh, well objectives. Um, now, the COVID crisis is interesting because we hope it will provide lessons on, um, on, uh, on government effectiveness. Um, but there's going to be a long period of investigation. Um, as I say, this is in some ways good news for academics because it will keep many people occupied for a long time as we try to dissect the lessons, hopefully in a way that will ultimately lead to policy conclusions. But it's going to be a long time before we have really rigorous and well-developed policy conclusions. We want to know what types of policy are more effective. Uh, are particular institutional features uh, been good in the responses to promote good responses? What kinds of socio-cultural factors are important? I'll come to trust in a moment. Um, but there are three big challenges that, 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 that I think is sort of affect the way we're interpreting this episode. One is radical uncertainty. We are not dealing with something which is about calibrating well understood things. And, I'll, and I, again, I will amplify this later. There's little or no agreement on what a good outcome is. Um, we could take a view, of course, we don't want people to, uh, too many people to die, but at what economic cost? Is that going to be an infinite economic cost we'd be willing to pay? Of course not. So the notion that we have well-defined objectives that we're pursuing and we can articulate, I think is, and that makes talking about effective government particularly prob problematic if we're going to think that part of effective government is figuring out what it is you want government to achieve. 
And also the debate is, and, and, and this remains true right now, is a very focused on short-term outcomes. And that's partly because of the nature of where we are. We are concerned about a crisis and we're trying to stop people dying in that crisis. And we're trying to protect people's economic lives in that crisis. So it's not surprising, but it's going to mean when we eventually look at this, when we're going to have to look at it over a much wider time horizon. If you look at the debate, for example, that's going on about Sweden's response at the moment, a lot of it is about over what time period should we evaluate that response? Uh, is, is it what happened in the first three months of the crisis? Well, no, it's going to be eventually when this crisis is over, we've got to look at it over a longer period. Now, um, the two themes that I'm going to talk about, I'll talk about very briefly and then I'll come to COVID. Um, trust, uh, I think most people now regard the study of trust as a, as a feature both of studying effective government, but also studying effective markets is a very central theme. Um, and uh, trust is central to having a social order. People need to trust in the government. And uh, um, Margaret Levy, who, who I'm working with actually on various projects at the minute, has, has, been a, has pushed very strongly, she's a political scientist, has pushed very strongly ideas like quasi-voluntary compliance and conditional consent being the, the, the kinds of things that high levels of trust can give you so that the state can get people to do things it wants them to do, pay their taxes or volunteer for military service without having to use too much coercive power. So trust is very important in, in the way we think about government effectiveness. Um, and trust is also important in markets. Markets really don't work so well if we have to fall back entirely on regulatory ways of making the market work. And it's not surprising, and this is, I'm going to show you this picture, but you've, you've probably seen several versions of this, that if you correlate measures of trust, this is from the World Value Survey, against levels of income, more trusting societies are generally higher income societies. That doesn't mean it causes higher income, but it tells you that there's presumably something here that we need to think about and to, and to investigate. Resilience is important too, um, and particularly so in the COVID crisis. How does a system of government or markets or whatever it be respond to shocks? Uh, and a system is resilient when it springs back following the shock so that we can bounce back in some, some way. Uh, and, and in the work I've done on this in the past, and I'll show you a picture uh, from some of that work in a moment, um, one, of the one of the things I've stressed in that work is that having appropriate oversight of key decisions and checks and balances is very important. To, to having a resilient um, uh, society, and whether you look at it in, in social uh, or political or economic terms. Um, and it's also a way, another important feature of resilient systems is the balance between expertise and politics. To what extent uh, can we balance those factors? Again, it's another form of checks and, and balances. Um, and one thing that's come out of the research I've done on this is that countries that put strong constraints on government power tend in general to be more resilient. Um, there is a risk that they're also more sclerotic. It's harder to get change and responsiveness, but in general, they've been a better way of protecting citizens. Um, and um, here's a way of illustrating this. There's lots of different ways to illustrate it, but if you use standardized measures of countries being assigned to either having weak oversight of the executive or strong oversight of the executive, and you ask your, yourself, uh, uh, what proportion of countries uh, with weak executive constraints have a civil war, it's about 1.4%, but 
but of those with strong executive constraints, it's 0.2%. Uh, if you ask how many countries and how frequently do countries in the world have a 10% drop in GDP, it's about 3.8% in the weak executive constraints countries and just 1.1% and so forth and so on. It looks as if the strong executive constraint problem um, and countries are much more resilient. Here's another way of looking at it. This is the distribution of GDP growth across countries with weak and strong executive constraints. And what you see, uh, the, 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 the blue um, uh, curve represents the strong executive constraints countries and the red, the weak executive constraints countries. And what you see are countries in the tails of that distribution with weak executive constraints. So up here, you have China, you had in historically Singapore, uh, South Korea, which were growing very well under weak executive constraints. Down here, you have Zimbabwe and Somalia. Basically, what you're doing by having weak executive cons constraints is exposing yourself to risk. True, you might have a draw up here and become China, but equally, you might have a draw down here and become Somalia. So effectively, the way I want to think about institutions is they're a form of, a, if they're designed well, a form of protection against shocks. And it does look as if the strong executive constraints countries, uh, and it doesn't matter what I've done, drawn the picture here for GDP growth, but if you look at any measures of risk, look a lot less risky places to live in. So if you imagine living behind a veil of ignorance and not knowing which kind of country you're going to be asked to live in, you might reasonably say, if I'm averse to risk, I want to live in a country with strong executive constraints because I'm much less likely to have one of these bad outcomes than living in a country with, with uh, weak executive constraints. Okay, so now come to COVID and I'll use the rest of my time to, to talk about uh, COVID and, and Kevin will tell me when that time is up. There are three dimensions to the crisis and I'm gonna talk about all three briefly. Um, a a the crisis is a health shock and economic shock and a shock to politics and society. The latter is the one we probably understood least well, but we're beginning to get to grips with the first ones. Here's a picture of something you'll have seen lots of. Uh, this comes from a paper, and so, unfortunately it doesn't have Greece in it, but I notice, I think it's uh, uh, one of my discussants has, uh, has a picture similar to this that I think has, um, has uh, Greece in it too. We've seen very different performances. So what are we asking ourselves as social scientists? Can we explain why it is that these pictures look different for different countries, both in terms of the speed at which the pandemic took off, the peak that was um, reached and so forth and so on. This is the question that we're ultimately going to try and answer. And I'm afraid I won't give you anything like a complete answer today. Um, what has been one of the big policy responses? Well, it's been things like lockdowns. Here's the uh, first wave of lockdowns and the, the, the severity of the lockdowns. This is an index of severity across countries. But again, what's interesting, a lot of different policy responses. So if you're interested in studying political economy, I want to know the question, I want the answer to the question, why is there such different responsiveness? This is true, there seems to be a pack sort of in the middle here, but even there, the peaks, the timing of these responses look, look rather different. And this is something I've been working a little bit on and I'll tell you about later. Um, so governments have been using to respond to COVID um, classic regulatory measures, uh, particularly locking down parts of the economy, uh, things that we would have thought even a year ago if we'd been sitting here were inconceivable as actions of government in modern times. I think you have to go back to medieval times when the Black Death led to lockdowns of cities to, uh, 
at least I, I, that's not quite true. There have been other things since, but these are these are not measures that we've typically studied in, in recent years. But of course, they haven't just done that. They've used a lot of messaging and information. That's important when you think about this trust and voluntary compliance. A lot of what the government's trying to do is to persuade us to do things in a particular way. And of course, we've been using support. We've, we've, we've had governments uh, implementing support measures for people who've been uh, affected by both the lockdowns and by the virus directly. Um, constraints on government, uh, um, uh, it's a strange way to put it, um, uh, are potentially an important part of this. I mean, there's been a huge debate and it, it, it's sort of been somewhat one-sided uh, in, in, in policy terms, in the UK at least, on whether um, this is overstepping the coercive power of the state. Um, and uh, there is the, the, although, as I say, it's not been a uh, really have much impact on policy, um, the role of the limits of coercive power has, is, is something that we will debate at great length after this is this is over. And the other thing that, of course, we're, we're debating is information control. Um, where do we learn what and by whom? And, I, and I'll return to that in, in, in a moment. Policy in the crisis has been based on quite limited evidence, and that's not surprising. Um, policy, but it, that's meant that what has actually happened, and I'm going to show you a couple of things in a moment, that policy has induced is a really open question. Um, how much is voluntary and autonomous actions by citizens, and how much is in policy-induced action? We really don't know uh, uh, enough about that. Um, and, uh, and, and again, I'll show you some stuff uh, later on that. Um, but importance, voluntary compliance has been extremely important and, and debating the role of social norms and cooperative behavior has been a feature of, uh, of, of the crisis. So there's a whole research program, I think, going to come out of this. Um, I'm going to discuss three types of dimension uh, that, that I'm going to look at in the data. One is what I'll call levels. What's actually happened to the disease? How do citizens behave? And how has the economy progressed? I'm going to look a little bit at responsiveness. How have citizens and government changed their behavior as the disease has progressed? And effectiveness. Uh, how do measures taken by citizens and government affect different outcomes? I think we know least of all about effectiveness. We know something about the levels although I claim we know much less than we'd like to know there, somewhat about something about responsiveness, which is what my own work in this area has been on, but effectiveness, not very much at all. And that's where the lessons are going to be learned. Uh, and I'm going to be interested in exploring what factors, economic, political, and cultural, uh, drive differences. Now, one big thing we've learned uh, right through the crisis is how limited the data we have are for studying the crisis itself. Now that again varies by country, but I, one thing that will for sure will come out of the crisis in terms of state effectiveness after the crisis is over is a wholesale review in the UK of whether we have the right kinds of data we need to manage society and the economy. Um, typical official data that we normally have relied on for slow moving events um, uh, um, is limited both in the timeliness and the granularity of that data for steering the economy through a pandemic. Um, 
And uh, we've really seen limitations of the database. And so when people talk about evidence-based policy, which was sort of the mantra of many governments, um, I think the, 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 the extent of being able to do evidence-based social science in the crisis has really been quite limited. There are things that we never used to track that we're suddenly being asked to track. What are our citizens doing? Are they leaving their homes? Are they mixing with other people? Are they social distancing? Are they using face masks? Um, I had a great idea. This is the best research project I suggested that's never gonna happen. I wanted to try and get data from surveillance cameras to look at who was wearing face masks. And uh, as you imagine, there were too many privacy concerns for that research project to ever take off. But we don't have a, much of an idea of how and where people are wearing face masks. You know, we can, there's no standardized database that we can appeal to, to look at that kind of behavior. Um, so what kind of real-time data, and this is something I've got very interested in, what kind of real-time data can we use? Well, for the economy, we can make a lot of use of financial transactions data, payments data, who's paying what into their bank account and who's taking what out to their bank account and who they're paying. We have credit card data as another source um, of, of data that's potentially interesting, as particularly during the, the in, in, in many countries, uh, people have been doing a lot more online transactions and other things like that. Mobility data, we've been learning to use mobile phones as a way of tracking what people do, because given the extent of mobile phone penetration now, that can be an important source of information. Um, and what's been striking is we the frequency at which we can do that. I've been doing mainly work on daily data. Um, so when I started working on this in March, um, uh, looking at the impact on, of the pandemic in the UK, by May, I'd almost doubled the size of my data set because I got another uh, 60 days of data uh, because I was looking literally as, as we were analyzing the data every day, new data would come in. So it's a very unreal experience to be actually able to, to work in real time with daily data. And also the data can often be used to, to, to look at geography, to look at the time pattern, to disaggregate by income group. Again, the data never are, are, are what you want, but, but it's been an amazing experience of seeing this surge of, uh, of work creating, uh, collecting new data. So um, I'm going to talk then about a few of the lessons from that, and then I'm going to wrap up. Um, I should say that the, the UK, um, where I've been mainly involved in this, is far from a paragon when it comes to collecting data. Um, the best data I know are available, uh, particularly economic data in Denmark, France, Portugal, Spain, and Sweden. Um, but they, you know, different countries have different uh, costs and benefits of using the data. Um, what, one thing we're certainly learning is when we think about what the link is between health and the economy, it's extremely complex. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and there's very few simple generalizations to be had. So let me show you a few lessons that have come out from some of this work. Here's a picture from a, a study based on UK fintech data. So one, uh, one thing you can do is you can persuade, this is from a, a financial app called Money Dashboard. You can have a look at all the transactions that people are making. And what this shows you is the pattern of spending from January through May in 2019. And you can compare that with the pattern of spending using the fintech data um, in 2020. Now, the one thing I want you, and of course, it's no surprise, sometime in March, 
you see a big dip in people's spending. Well, that's not a big surprise. But one of the interesting things is here's the lockdown date. And notice that a lot of the falls in spending predate the lockdown, suggesting that people are already um, uh, um, anticipating that. And moreover, when the lockdown was eased in May, um, there was not a big recovery. And I, was, I, I saw some analysis of some data on restaurant bookings. Restaurant bookings took a long time to recover, suggesting again that people are changing their behavior, not entirely in response to government policy, but in response to their own assessments of risk. The other thing we've learned is that, uh, and this is looking at it um, again, and this is for the UK, looking at it by income group, is that people in the lowest income group have had the biggest falls in monthly ex expenditures. Um, and that, uh, sorry, have had the biggest falls in income, the, the lower income groups. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, um, and most, but most of the expenditure and most of the expenditure adjustment has been from the low income groups with the higher income groups having had both their income and their um, uh, expenditures uh, protected. We also know that there are huge differences across countries. This is data from BBVA, which is a large Spanish bank, just showing you that over the same period, there are the, just as there's all these differences in, uh, in responses in terms of the disease, there's huge differences in the pattern. All get a, a major fall, but the pattern of recovery and the pattern of uh, falls is quite different across different countries and across um, uh, different localities within countries, it turns out, when you disaggregate. So there are huge amounts of differences that we have to explain. Um, and I think it's hard to believe that they're really just a product of, of government policy. Um, I'll end with talking a little bit about disease progression and mobility, which is a topic I've been working on. Very early on in the crisis, we collected data from the European Centre for Disease Control for over 200 countries on what was happening to mortality. Um, it turns out that we were looking at, we looked at raw mortality, excess mortality, which is a much better measure, is really only available for about 28 countries. And what we asked ourselves in this research is, how are citizens responding to, um, to the crisis? And for that, we went to Google mobility data. So for every day, for every country, you can get a measure of the extent to which citizens are on the move in that country. And we were able to track the crisis through the lens of Google mobility data on a daily basis. Um, and then for the United States, we also got other data from pings on mobile phones, where it turns out if two mobile phones get into proximity with each other, they communicate. And you can get a measure, therefore, of how socially distant people are. And we were interested in lots of questions. Uh, how does this vary with income? How does it vary with country characteristics? Uh, citizen trust, trust in government. Let me just show you a couple of things I want to draw your, your, um, your eye to here. Here's deaths per million population, disaggregated by various things. Now notice COVID, if you believe the death data, and I'm not going to go into that, but we can debate that if you want. If you believe the reported death data, COVID has, COVID has been much worse in countries that tend to hold free and fair elections have strong executive constraints and a high income. So um, COVID has is, is, is not, is, is, is not been something that has proportionately hit poorer countries more. More interesting uh, from, from uh, something that, that, that I talked about earlier, high trust countries though, 
tend to have had a much better experience relative to low trust countries. And that's also true for countries where people trust the government. So the red line is where you have high trust in government, the mortality uh, rates are lower than in countries that have had high trust. So it does suggest um, and, that media freedom goes the other way. The free media countries have tend to have a much worse experience. In terms of mobility, um, some other interesting uh, patterns emerge uh, using the same indicators. Um, the where you see a big difference in mobility, so this is whether people adhere um, to um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, whether they, they decide to break with their patterns of going out as often as they do. The high trust countries on, on the whole have had smaller falls in mobility than the low trust countries. So even though they've had a better experience, whatever they're doing, they, they are presumably going out and engaging in more uh, um, um, socially distanced types of behavior, even when they, when they go out. What about citizen responsiveness? Um, I'm gonna look at two things briefly. I'm gonna look at heterogeneity across space and time. What, one thing that we found in our research is that when we look at how much citizens and government have responded to the crisis, there's been a lot more responsiveness to the crisis in the free media countries than the censored media countries. We think that's an important, we think that's because uh, free media is part of an engine of gaining the trust of the population. So they feel that whatever their government is telling them is more likely to be subject to scrutiny. So it goes along with the message that trust is important. But notice there's no difference, sorry, these lines show that the um, reduction in mobility for the free media countries versus the non-free media countries where zero is no change in mobility. There's no difference between rich and poor countries. Um, so it does look as if what's really going on is something to do with the nature of the institutions, the trust, and the, uh, the way that institutions like the media are informing their citizens in the way the pandemic is evolving. I'll show you one other thing before I close, and that's looking at, uh, this, is, comes, this is using Ameri um, data from the US. What you saw earlier in the crisis, and it seems to be a pattern you see in lots of countries, but this is particularly good evidence in terms of its validity, is citizens responded immediately. So this is a measure of how much social distancing people did. So up here is a lot of social distancing. Early in the crisis, people really did uh, start, start uh, engaging in social distancing. But then over time, that's diminished to a point where by October, there seems to be almost no social distancing going on in response to changes in mortality. So over this period, there've been changes in mortality and we asked the question, how responsive are people to those changes in mortality? And it appears that early on they were highly responsive, but they become much less responsive over time. And one thing to observe, this is very casual evidence, is if you look at trust in government measures, they seem to follow exactly the same pattern. So when people trusted the government, they responded a lot to the COVID crisis. But as they lost trust in government, so this is the trust in, in the federal government, which was declining through the crisis, as trust declined, so did their responsiveness to the crisis decline, suggesting again that the message that something is going on that needs more investigation in relation to trust is important. 
Okay, so I'm going to um, uh, end there um, with just a few concluding thoughts. Um, uh, it's going to take us a while to learn the lessons, but I think that the themes that we were working on before the crisis about what drives government effectiveness are going to be the things that we come back to and try and understand better. And eventually, when we get to the policy conclusions, we're going to ask a number of questions, some about how do we build new state capacities? Do we need institutional changes? But also, how do we build a stronger and more effective social contract between citizens and government so that we can get uh, uh, citizens and government to work together to combat whatever is the next crisis or pandemic that comes along. Uh, so with that, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim, very much indeed. That was uh, wonderfully clear and uh, you raise uh, quite a number of issues, very topical indeed, but as you say, in relation to themes, issues that have endured in the social sciences for some time. In the interest of time, I wonder if I could just raise three quick points and they're more of a conceptual nature, uh, really. You say levels of social trust are strongly correlated uh, with degrees of success. And your focus, of course, is trust in, in government or trust in, in the state. And I, I think my first question is whether actually what matters is trust in government or is it trust in the message? Is it trust in experts? Uh, you talk about the social contract between citizen and the state, but it seems really that if we're talking about voluntary compliance, that it may be something with uh, the message that the citizen is hearing, possibly from, from whom. Uh, the other second aspect you focus on very much is the sense of civic mindedness. And you say that uh, the, the sense of the social contract uh, suggests a state uh, strength. And I wonder uh, how we could measure such a thing, uh, how we could have a robust uh, measurements of civic mindedness. What does that mean? You refer to a civic culture, uh, and I wonder how robust that is as a variable in the uh, explanation. And then I think, uh, thirdly and finally, uh, from me, um, you referred to resilience, and I was wondering though, uh, your references to whether a system will spring back and be resilient. But I wonder what resilience is actually contributing in your argument. Is resilience some kind of cause or is it some kind of uh, effect? When and why do we want to have uh, resilience? Uh, you refer to uh, systems which may have a logjam, may, may be uh, unadaptive, as it were. Well, if, if it's a system which is underperforming, um, we don't necessarily wish to have that uh, resilience. So. Uh, but, but I wonder, though, in terms of resilience, what parts that plays in your argument? Perhaps you could um, help me on that. So basically, I've got three points about uh, is it trust in government? Is it trust in the message? Uh, when we start to talk about culture and civic mindedness, 
what does that mean? How could we measure it? How would we know it? And thirdly and finally, um, is resilience part of a cause or is it an effect? What part does it have in your argument? What's been contributed uh, here? So I've uh, put those in a rather staccato fashion for, and I apologize for that, but in the interest of time, let me now uh, uh, shift the focus so we can look at the extent to which Greece fits your argument. What is the evidence from the Greek case in respect of your argument? And can I warmly invite uh, Maria to make her comments, please? Okay, thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, let me see if I can share my screen. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure and my honor to participate in this online event organized by the Hellenic Observatory and supported by the National Bank of Greece. I would like to thank Tim for his very stimulating presentation, very rich conceptually and also in terms of empirical data analysis. I will take up the point that uh, Kevin raised, namely that um, there is a strong correlation between trust levels and success that uh, Tim uh, brought up in, in, in his uh, presentation, although with the, the caveat that the causal link is not very clear between these two variables. And the example of Greece, as well as the example of other countries, raise some questions as to the validity of this correlation. So uh, my comments will focus on the uh, theme of trust, on the theme of communication of policy, namely the policy concerning the measures for uh, curbing the uh, spread of COVID-19, state capacity and effectiveness of government. Um, data from various surveys over the last uh, six, seven years show that Greece scores comparatively low in terms of trust if we compare Greece with other North European countries and usually at the high end are the Scandinavian countries which are high social trust countries. But Despite this fact, Greece succeeded in um, um, dealing with COVID-19 during the first wave. I mean, the government's policy was quite successful. So this raises a question about the correlation between trust and success. And also within this group of high social trust countries, we have different kinds of policies and different kinds of outcomes. So uh, uh, Sweden has opted for a very for very loose measures and delegated responsibility to the individual, but the outcome it's not as good as it is in Denmark, for instance, which opted for more rigorous for a more rigorous stance, uh, and uh, the final outcome is much better compared to Sweden. Uh, however, this argument about the um, uh, about low trust in Greece is reinforced if we focus on how the measures were monitored in Greece. There was a very strict monitoring based on police patrols, based on strict control of uh, the movement of uh, the population, and also 
on the imposition based on the imposition of uh, economic penalties. Uh, and this somehow shows that there is a kind of adver adversarial um, characteristic concerning the state-society relationship in Greece and to a large extent reinforces this issue of law, trust in society. And also, uh, if we um, focus on the way policy has been communicated in Greece, I mean, these measures of the lockdown, how they have been communicated, especially during the first wave, I think there is a very interesting um, um, comparison between Greece and Denmark in this respect, which exactly reinforces the fact that trust is quite low in Greece. Uh, well, uh, communication was had a kind of uh, top-down character, a kind of paternalistic character. Uh, the uh, top uh, figure, the top epidemiologist was appearing on television every night during the first wave and he uh, uh, presented the data about the cause of the infection and also gave advice to, to, to the people. And this had, as I said, a kind of paternalistic character, this relationship, which uh, reflects a more passive, non-collaborative societal involvement compared to a more collaborative type of communication, for instance, in Denmark that encouraged a more active role by civil society created, I mean, the way the, uh, the prime minister and very, and very many other officials appeared on television and had a dialogue, created a sort of community that encouraged a more voluntary involvement by the, uh, by the civil society. So all these characteristics, to some extent, indicate uh, this adversarial um, uh, characteristic of state-society relationship in Greece, which in the end uh, reflects the, uh, a low trust uh, um, in, in government, uh, low social trust, low trust in governmental institutions, and so on and so forth. So if we take the issue of how effectively ha has Greece battled the pandemic, as I said before, um, the measures taken by the government were quite successful during the first wave. Can we attribute this to state capacity? Yes and no. It depends on how we de define state capacity. For instance, if we define state capacity as the ability of the government to set a goal and achieve it, I would say that during this first phase, indeed, Greece had a state capacity in this respect. I mean, because it set a specific goal and it achieved it. And here in this... Uh, uh, figure Greece is depicted by the green line at the bottom of the of this figure, and we see that until early September, the situation in terms of the cumulative number of deaths per million people was much better in Greece compared even with the north with the Nordic countries. Now, which was the goal? The main goal that the main strategy that the government had in the uh, in, during the first wave was to secure a positive image of a, of a safe destination for tourism to resume in the summer. So tourism is the heavy industry in Greece, so they wanted to shelter tourism from a case where Greece wouldn't be a safe, safe, uh, safe uh, site for tourists to come. And it, it, it succeeded in this respect. Also, we have to take in mind that uh, this swift uh, uh, implementation of very strict measures partly was uh, the result of, 
of a fear that the um, chronically austerity hit national health system wouldn't be able to uh, uh, wouldn't be able to um, to withstand to the pressures if the, the spread was quite high and uh, and was ex exponential. So and we have to take into account that when uh, um, the um, the COVID nineteen broke out. Uh, to give you a kind of uh, uh, comparative uh, measure, Greece had only four intensive um, uh, intensive care units per 100,000 population, compared to over 10 in Spain and Italy, and about 34, 35 in Germany. And also per capita spending, public spending on health was very low in Greece, it was four times less than in Germany, in Denmark, but even lower than in Portugal. So we had a quite debilitated national health system and also a very weak primary care system, which is a buffer for COVID-19. If you have a quite strong primary care system, then you can easily trace the cases and provide treatment in the community. And so there will not be much pressure on secondary care on, on hospitals. Okay, uh, but in the second wave, we, we observe a dismal performance, preparedness of the public health infrastructure during the summer and until the second wave broke out was very sluggish no particularly robust random testing, contact and tracing and surveillance system was in place. Daily tests per 100,000 population on the base of a, of a rolling seven day average uh, have persistently been very low, one fifth of what is of the tests conducted in Denmark, for instance. So we have a dismal performance during the second wave. Also, additional COVID-19 public health spending commitments per capita have been very low, even though when the uh, uh, pandemic broke out, uh, per capita spending on health was very low in Greece, we see that the commitments for extra spending have been, have been very low. And also um, the um, um, excess mortality rate is higher than the number of deaths than the mortality rate registered uh, from COVID-19, which means that either not all deaths from COVID-19 are registered or that people are dying because of other causes, because uh, they are afraid to go to hospitals or because the hospitals are overwhelmed as they are nowadays during the second, the, the second wave. So overall, and very briefly, um, this uh, resilience score that is um, uh, calculated by um, uh, uh, Bloomberg shows the the overall performance of Greece. Although during the first wave we had a success, dismal performance in the second wave makes a kind of average position in Greece in in uh, among fifty three countries that are included in this resilience score that is calculated by Bloomberg. Greece is thirty first, and. Uh, uh, for calculating this resilience score, two groups of parameters are used. One group referred to epidemiological parameters, uh, which you see um, uh, in this table, while the um, uh, second group of parameters concern what uh, is called quality of life and that they are the social and economic, is the social and economic impact of COVID. 
And here the lockdown severity is taken as a negative characteristic because after 10 months, multiple waves, uh, imposing lockdowns, uh, it, it, uh, shows a kind of failure by the government to curb the pandemic by other means. So lockdown severity is used in the calculation of this resilience score as a negative uh, characteristic. And uh, the community mobility is from the Google uh, mobility data and the Bloomberg economics data that shows that uh, there, have been, there has been quite a lot of restriction in terms of uh, community mobility and the recession will be quite heavy, quite deep in Greece as the estimate, uh, the forecast by IMF shows. Uh, I have omitted some other uh, parameters because uh, these do not make much difference among the countries that are shown here. And I haven't included all the countries. New Zealand, of course, is always at the top. I mean, in all these uh, estimations of resilience score, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the Bloomberg uh, ranking includes very many countries from uh, also different uh, continents, but I've only included some European countries for comparison. Now, I have two more questions or remarks, I would say, which focus more on sociological parameters, which are very important, because the pandemic is, is having and is expected to have in the medium to long run a quite important impact on inequality and polarization. First of all, the pandemic is accelerating job polarization. Job polarization has been going on for over two decades in Europe and in North America. If you take statistical data for about 20 years, you see that the only jobs that were created in most European countries were either at the top uh, end of the labor market or at the lower end of the labor market, while the middle ground, which is composed of uh, I mean, the middle ground that is mid-paid, middle-skilled jobs have been in decline. And the pandemic is expected to further eliminate this middle ground to a large extent. And at the, currently, this polarization is reflected in the emerging divide between occupations that can easily transition to online work and those less able to do so. And there are some very interesting works on uh, North America and on, on Europe that show that Teleworkable employment consists primarily by high-paid jobs. That is, 70% of teleworkable employment are high-paid jobs. On the other hand, these low-paid precarious jobs that have been created over the last two decades, they are concentrated either the most in the most affected sectors, like for instance, uh, um, hospitality, leisure, and so on, or on the most essential sectors that is the sectors that keep the economy going during the pandemic. And in these most essential sectors, we see the concentration of social workers, staff, um, assisting staff uh, uh, to healthcare, um, cashiers in supermarkets and so on and so forth. And the, uh, the specter of unemployment, it's quite high, especially for the low paid precarious jobs in the most affected sectors. And in these most affected sectors, uh, young people, um, um, and the young women are overrepresented and the uh, unemployment risk is very high for this kind of group of people and will have a scar for them during their career, especially if they are just entering the labor market. And on the other hand, the uh, low paid precariously working people in the most essential sectors have a high risk of being infected and dying from the virus. 
I couldn't find any comparative data on mortality by occupation. The only data that I found concerned the UK, which has published this data. And we, we see that these low paid, precariously working people in these two groups of sectors have a um, um, age standardized mortality rate four, time, four times that of professionals and um, uh, administrators and so on and so forth. Also, okay. the pandemic presents a serious risk of rolling back the gains achieved in gender equality over the last decades because the government measures increase the unpaid uh, workload uh, for women, the lockdown, the closure of schools and all these things. And also because some early studies show that reduction of uh, in, uh, working hours uh, uh, takes place most, most often among women during the uh, pandemic, especially under the furlough schemes and other state-funded uh, support schemes. And this might have a negative effect on the career of women because they may not be able to come back, to return to full employment, and this will have long-term long effects. They will end up in a very low position compared to men with similar um, skills. And finally, okay. this polarization, I, I'll close here. This polarization is reflected on the welfare system because these low-paid, precariously working people are not covered by labor relations and not covered by social safety nets. And this overlaps with the um, generational protection gap with young people more protected, uh, less protected, old people more protected, and we'll, here would include other vulnerable groups. Uh, my last question is whether the matters. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Marie. I wonder if we could move on because we're going to run out of time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know that you wanted to bring the EU dimension in. Yeah, I think it's very, very important, especially very for relevant. countries like Greece. Yeah. But it, yeah. it might come in uh, in, in the, the discussion, discussion. Yeah, uh, okay. perhaps. But thank you. That was uh, very powerful, uh, Dimitri. Hello, I would like to thank our host for inviting me to participate in this discussion and our speaker for making me think about issues of trust, resilience and government effectiveness. Um, I'm going to share my screen. Over here. So, um, So my, this is my outline. Very briefly, I will refer to the COVID-19 situation only at the end of this talk. Indeed, I would like to suggest to you that it is now a situation which is pertinent for us, social scientists, to think about the larger issues, such as whether uh, trust, resilience, and government effectiveness uh, make institutions more robust or the other way around, as I would like to argue. This is that state institutions themselves create more or less trust, resilience and effectiveness. I will go through very uh, few sociological and political science approaches. And then I will look at the case of Greece in a comparative perspective. This will be a provisional, very uh, pilot type of um, study, which I will present to you in order to discuss state capacity. So I will take the point that a state's capacity and also the strengths of institutions themselves create trust. It is impossible to have trust in, in something which does not exist. So the point is that you first have 
institutions, they perform better or worse, and then people trust them or do not trust them. And of course, as a political scientist, I'm obliged to say that whether you have higher level trust, resilience, and effectiveness also depends on legitimacy, which is of three kinds. Legitimacy, which is granted to the state, uh, to the political regime, and to the government in place. There are many approaches to study state capacity. Um, older thinkers have discussed state capacity in terms of government's autonomy from private interests. Also, um, an ex-LSE professor Michael Mann talked about the state's despotic and infrastructure power and talked about thus the higher or lower state capacity of a state to um, govern society. And there are also um, other approaches which discuss whether a state is able to tax a population, to regulate socioeconomic relations and um, to control society. So here is my take of this issue. State capacity is not to be measured so much um, as a capacity to raise taxes in general, but to raise taxes specifically on individuals or households. State capacity is also possible to be measured by looking at how states limit shadow economy, an issue which is very topical in the, and pertinent to the case of South European and East European societies. States capacity to control corruption is also another possible measure. And also uh, today we discuss about the capacity of states to control the, sp the spread of the pandemic. I would like to place Greece in the comparative perspective of other countries. And in this pilot type of work, I have chosen to look at countries which are of the same or similar population size among the EU member states. So on the left column, you see the population size. And of course, on the right hand column, you see that there are variable levels of the total GDP. And here are measures of the types of indicators I mentioned earlier, tax revenue, shadow economy, ability to um, control the number of non-insured salaried people, ability to control corruption, and the last one, which is a count of deaths per 100,000 million people, data provided as of the 1st of December. So as um, you look at this table, you see that um, Greece is um, not performing well in any of these um, indicators, except for the case of the number of COVID-19 related deaths. And I would like to make this more evident by presenting a few slides where Greece is placed in the company of other countries which perform similarly along these indicators of state capacity. So with regard to tax raising capacity, uh, this is not news for anyone in this webinar. Greece has a low tax raising capacity and it is in the same group as the Czech Republic and Hungary. With regard to the ability to control um, the shadow economy, again, uh, Greece, uh, Hungary, but also Portugal have a relatively uh, larger shadow economy. This is measured, of course, on the basis of an average. Um, and then I take this average and I place my countries above or uh, below that average. With regard to control of corruption, again, you have uh, Greece uh, at uh, the group of countries which cannot control corruption well. 
And it's only in the case of looking at countries able to limit the spread of fatalities of COVID-19 that we see that Greece has higher state capacities. So obviously I'm making the point that um, one has to, to see beyond the current situation of the pandemic to think of Greece as a country that has a mixed record in on most counts, it is not a country that has strong state institutions, but there is uh, the ongoing situation of the COVID-19 that we should uh, look at without, of course, rushing to um, draw positive or negative conclusions about the current situation of November, December 2020. I suspect it is impossible now to uh, praise the government or condemn the government for a situation of um, uh, victims of COVID-19 uh, that is still unfortunately evolving. So my conclusions are of the following kind. It is meaningful, I believe, to place countries like Greece in um, a group of medium-sized states. On three out of the four counts, which I have noted, Greece shows relatively weak state capacity. And that means that uh, government ineffectiveness is evident and well known. In uh, regard to uh, fighting corruption, to limiting uh, the shadow economy, and to raise taxes. However, state capacity is different when one looks at uh, whether Greece has been successful to uh, limit the spread of uh, the pandemic. Greece, Hungary, Portugal, and Austria show relatively higher state capacity if one takes this group of medium-sized EU member states. And to conclude, um, I think that it is obvious that Greece is a relatively less advanced economy with uh, low state capacity on the counts I mentioned. Uh, it has uh, shown an ability to control the numbers of victims of the current pandemic. And the question is why? And I will spend only a few minutes on this. I believe that the success of the first um, period when the pandemic started is owed to the fact that in contrast to the other public policy areas I mentioned, in the case of the um, effort to limit the effects of the pandemic, we had three measures taken by the government. One was quick reflexes. The government responded rather quickly to signs that uh, that was not a typical uh, disease and that was a pandemic. And that is not the case with the reflexes which the Greek government has shown with regard to limiting corruption or uh, raising taxes um, on personal income. The second, uh, I think, important thing to note is that we have a shift of decision-making in the Greek government. Usually the Greek government tries to reinvent the wheel. It rarely consults with experts. At this particular moment, by which I mean between um, late February and this month, we see a shift. The government has given a lot of ground to experts. Um, politics have, has really um, become marginalized to the extent that experts have taken decisions on all the issues, such as how and when to um, proceed with tests in the wider population. Experts said that uh, this was not a good strategy, at least in the first wave. 
or um, what to do about a complete lockdown and experts uh, asked the government to impose a complete lockdown much stricter in the past, last spring than today. And finally, the third point which uh, sets government's, government policy in Greece apart in the case of the pandemic compared to the other cases is that there were, there were clear rules. These rules were simple to follow and they were uh, stated, announced publicly um, in a, an comprehensible manner. And then after announcing this policy, there was strict um, enforcement of the rules. Again, in contrast to all other cases I have mentioned, such as in the cases um, in which um, the Greek governments, successive Greek governments, have uh, tried to raise taxes, limit sh the shadow economy, or control corruption. So perhaps, uh, even though it's too early to tell, um, my conclusion is that these new elements in Greek policy making may provide a lesson after the pandemic is over in order to um, make progress in the other policy areas which I have mentioned. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dimitri, and thank you. Uh, you've uh, caught up on time for us. Uh, that's much appreciated. Um, Tim, I wonder if I can come back to you and uh, invite you to respond just in a few minutes to um, what has been said. I appreciate there's been quite a lot which has been uh, raised, but um, perhaps you'd like to uh, select what you think are the uh, most important points for you to respond and then we'll go to the Q&A. Yeah, I, I will be very brief because I'm keen to, to give people a chance to ask questions. Just just a couple of things to, to respond to. Um, on Let me take your, your final question, if, if you don't mind, Kevin, the one on resilience. I think that's a very important question, what we mean by resilience in this context. So a good example is people would say, well, in some, er some areas like um, trying to fight climate change, um, there's, you know, we want to go, we want to change the world. We don't want to just go back to where we were. Maybe there's opportunities to rethink the way we do things, maybe the forms of transportation that we use and so forth, where our notion of resilience wouldn't be just returning to the, uh, to the situation before the crisis. But, um, and, and, and I do think, therefore, you're right to say, we need a definition of resilience, which is about restoring a sense of confidence, trust, and belief in ourselves and our lives in, in the way that's been knocked by the crisis, but does not assume that many of the things about society that we were unhappy with can't, can't be changed. And I think that was a refrain, actually, in, in, in both Maria and Demetrius's comments, that there will be things that come out of this crisis that are going to be things we have to rethink. We probably should have been rethinking otherwise. So, Labour market insecurity would be another example. Um, the, this was an issue that's been accentuated by the crisis, but it wasn't created by the crisis. So if the, if the crisis leads us to think through issues and, and then to build uh, um, uh, new forms of state capacity or whatever it takes to deal with those issues, um, then, then we won't just be trying to recreate the world that we had uh, before. Um, I, I thought just on in terms of what Demetrius said at, at the end there and um, what made Greece's response uh, different, um, I think one of the questions you raised, and I think could be a subject of a whole conversation, is exactly 
how you get the role of expertise um, and how that works in general in a political system. Um, and uh, I'm less convinced uh, than, than, than you seem to be that this is, you know, the countries that, that outsource this to experts were in general a more successful group. But that's exactly the kind of debate we will be having in the next couple of years. I don't think it's easy to resolve that now. Thank you very much indeed. So let me try to pick up on some of the questions that have come in. Incidentally, we're delighted that uh, we have um, people joining us from literally all over the world. I'm seeing India, United States, Peru, uh, not Australia yet, but we're doing okay so far. Um, so some questions, uh, if I could uh, take up here. From Carmine in, in Rome, uh, resilience has been defined in so many different ways. We, we can consider it as an, can we consider it as a negative attitude or as a positive one? Is it a biological or is it a historical attribute? Tim. Well, that's quite a deep, a deep question. I mean, <laughs> my, my, my sense is that we, we have to define it relative to, to context. So, you know, if, if we're talking about the complete breakdown of a social order, as in the case of, um, you know, case where we, civil war or something like that erupts um, in an otherwise orderly, what had been an otherwise orderly society, I think we would all agree that normatively that concept of resilience uh, is something we do care about, that we want, we may not agree with the, 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 the way everything is being done, but um, an element of stability and social order uh, as a backdrop to uh, achieving the goals that society wants to achieve um, seems like a, um, uh, a relatively uh, um, uh, um, consensus notion of resi resilience. But I think it goes back a little bit to what you said earlier. Resilience could be thought of as a system that's kind of stuck. Uh, and therefore, you know, if we're stuck in a climate trap, uh, we don't want resilience. We want to get out. We, we don't want to be constantly drawn back into the climate trap we might be in. So in that sense, so I think it's very, one has to be subtle about the way one uses the term contextually, um, uh, not just to have a kind of blanket definition yeah. and apply There's, it carefully. Thanks. There's a question from Alice about compliance and uh, the extent to which uh, compliance may be related to matters other than trust. And she highlights um, declining compliance uh, being linked to a fatigue of uh, quarantine restrictions, restrictions on lifestyle, etc., or even as she puts this, a, a desensitization to questions of mortality, mortality uh, rates. So, as we go through the COVID crisis, uh, might the key factor be uh, fatigue rather than trust? Yeah, I mean, that fits with the idea that in the, particularly in the psychology literature, um, it's very clear that, that, that there is a degree of, of human adaptation to circumstance as part of our probably evolutionary uh, genetic uh, nature that we get used to things and we, they, they shock us less the more we're exposed to them. Uh, and and I, I mean, surely early on, the very, the, what I showed in the picture with the very big increases in behavioral response um, 
probably were uh, uh, something to do with the fear factor that one gets when one does the new and highly uncertain situation. And we kind of habituate over time to such things as we learn to understand them and also uh, to control them because there have been big advances in treatment and understanding of how we prevent transmission of COVID. So, so, so it would also be natural as we learn more and more about the things we can do to protect ourselves and to protect others, that would elicit a less alarmist response. But the, um, the sort of uh, initial impact of something like this would, would surely something to do with psychology as much as it is of trust, as, as the questioner says. Thank you. For this next question, um, I wonder if I could bring in Maria and uh, Demetrius. Uh, because it's um, directly related to, to Greece, and it's from, from Professor Stella, Stella Lavigne. Um, and she asks about the correlation between resilience and trust, what that correlation might be. Could we say that at this particular moment, Greece had the right balance of trust because of the quick reflexes and the compliance uh, behavior? Um, uh, Maria, do you want to... Uh, start off on, on, on that. that uh, let me repeat the question. Could we say that at this particular moment, Greece actually had the right balance of trust because it had uh, the quick reflexes and uh, a reinforcement of compliance? Um, I'm not quite sure that actually that I'm getting that question, but uh, she's clearly asking about the relationship between resilience and social trust. Uh, I don't know, Dimitri or, or Maria, do you want to come in on that? Maria? Well, I mean, uh, I wouldn't say that compliance is related to trust because I see that the way the measures are monitored in a very strict way, this shows that uh, the government doesn't expect compliance and that there is a kind of adversarial um, relationship between state and society. Therefore, it implemented these very strict monitoring processes. Uh, I wouldn't see this as an indicator of trust anyway. And as for resilience, uh, what about defining also resilience from the point of view of households and people? I mean, we're talking here very much about the resilience of the economy or the, um, the state or the society, but the resilience of society is also the, uh, the sum of the resilience of people. And uh, a uh, recent uh, study by the uh, European Foundation for the uh, Living and Working Conditions shows that resilience in Greece on the part of households it's quite low because about 40% of the respondents said that uh, they then with very difficulty can make meets, ends meet. So resilience from the point of view of households, it's, it's also a very important point that we have to take into the picture. Thank you. I wonder, uh, Dimitri, if I could just shift, shift to a different question, which has come in, but is expressly directed uh, to you because it's on on Greece. And the question really is um, whether you think there are any common patterns 
uh, between the uh, response in Greece to the COVID-19 crisis and the response in the earlier debt crisis of 2009-2010. And I take it that the question is referring to um, how you would compare levels of trust, compliant behavior, uh, the resilience of institutions, uh, etc. So what was different in um, 2020 from 2009? Thank you. Um, my response would be brief. Uh, I hope also um, informative. The period of 2010-2012 uh, showed a dramatic, very abrupt actually, decline of trust towards institutions in Greece. And that was a decline uh, after a long period of declining trust, which um, had preceded the onset of that economic crisis. Uh, by contrast today, I think the element which I underlined perhaps excessively, the fact that first of all, not only politicians, but also experts take decisions. And secondly, um, the fact that until very recently, parties of the opposition converged with the government with regard to the measures which have been taken have contributed to higher level of trust rather than the dramatic drop in trust, which witnessed, we witnessed between 2010 and 2011, 2012 actually. And the other difference in these two cases, I think, have to do with the obvious fact that in uh, the current crisis, the element of fear, which we have not discussed in this webinar, is indeed very important. People mm -hmm. are afraid of their lives. That is much more serious uh, than um, being afraid that, as many of us thought in 2010, there was a temporary economic crisis that could perhaps have affected us for um, a predictable time period. It turned out that it was a long and grave crisis, but we were not as afraid then as we are today. And that is a major difference, I believe. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm coming back to uh, Tim, if, uh, if I may. picks up on something that both Maria and Dimitris um, mentioned. And that is that uh, they both highlighted that in the Greek case, um, in response to the COVID crisis in, of this year, it appeared that strict monitoring and strict sanctions was able to overcome uh, problems of low trust. And we have a question from Aradia uh, here, which says that, uh, for a country with low citizen confidence or trust, is it more effective for the government to try to stimulate a more voluntary compliance, or is it uh, more effective to use coercive institutions uh, in the conditions of a, of a pandemic? I'm interpreting that. So I suppose it goes back to what Maria and Dimitris were saying, uh, in a condition of uh, low trust, um, it would seem that it would be effective to have strict monitoring and sanctions, but then of course that might have longer term implications. Uh, we may have some kind of loop back effect on, on trust. 
And, and I think you've, in a sense, answered the, the question with your final comment. I mean, I think from one can take a very short-termist view that if one's in a crisis and, I mean, if one thinks about a military operation, um, there's often a lot of top-down control um, required to bring about a successful resolution of that. But then the question is, if you want to run a system that uh, has various effective fee feedback loops built into the system and accountability built into it, then often feedback, uh, top-down me methods of operation uh, are, are less effective in the long run. And the question is how you get the balance between that. And, and, and I mean, I think the, the US has been a very interesting um, um, study in this respect. There's a wonderful book by an economic historian called Werner Triskan, um, which, which is written about the US called The Pox of Liberty. And the subtitle is Why America um, why the American Constitution makes Americans free, prosperous, and prone to disease. Um, uh, and it's sort of, you can't have it every way. Uh, and this was a book, by the way, it was written 15 years ago. It's not a book written about COVID crisis. Um, it, at some level, we build, uh, we build a particular system, and it's very hard to switch gear from a, uh, a, a more trust and voluntaristic system to a more top-down control system and, and you know, we, we may make decisions over time that we didn't have that balance right, but I, I, it's often not available to some societies to simply switch gear and change the way they regulate behavior at the drop of a hat. I think these are, these are deeply ingrained contextually into the way societies operate. So what Sweden's done is I think a very clear reflection of the way a Swedish society and culture operates. I mean, it's institutional, but it's also very strongly cultural. Yes, honestly, I was uh, struck that at the beginning of the pandemic, I was living in Italy, in Firenze, and I couldn't fail to notice differences of administrative instruments, indeed, administrative culture. Uh, so in the Italian case, we'd have the President of the Republic coming on TV at nine o'clock, issuing decrees which would take effect uh, at breakfast next morning. And these decrees would be posted on every uh, public and private building uh, outside, it, it, immediate decrees, immediate dictates, uh, etc. And I guess uh, you know, from a political science point of view, that seemed to uh, remind me about the importance of differences of administrative culture, of how administrations attempt to do things. And by contrast, of course, what you've just said in the uh, Swedish case, I recall a cabinet minister from Sweden uh, making a, a statement to the effect that the Swedish government uh, expects every citizen will carry out their social responsibility. The contrast between North and South couldn't have been posed more uh, starkly. However, of course, uh, as you were saying before, Tim, the performance in terms of the COVID crisis of uh, both Sweden and Italy has been uh, very, very patchy. Uh, so it's not obvious uh, that how um, governments act in terms of the instruments or the style or the administrative uh, mechanisms, it's not obvious that those have a direct impact in terms of compliance. Yeah. And when you add to that the possibility that this is reinforcing things, so authoritarian countries become more authoritarian. Yeah. 
whereas we might have thought there was a path towards some kind of liberalization in those countries. So you really do. I think that the, the bottom line lesson is we, we can't just look at the short term. It, it's really going to be about the long term impact of, of this on it, on the way we run societies. We can't judge it even based on whatever we are now, seven months into the crisis. Well, that seems to be an appropriate point uh, to bring matters to uh, a conclusion in the sense that uh, this talk clearly has to be repeated at some future time when we have more evidence um, as the uh, pandemic has uh, hopefully been overcome. Uh, I'm delighted that we've had uh, your responses from the audience and uh, participation for this uh, lecture from so many different countries, India, Peru, United States, uh, various countries across Europe, etc. So um, I think that's something of a, a first for the Hellenic Observatory to have such wide international participation. Uh, so I thank you uh, for that. Let me, before, uh, as I finish, let me uh, thank once again uh, the National Bank of Greece for their collaboration for this lecture series. We look forward to being able to return this series uh, to Athens uh, in the not too distant future. Let me thank the um, very interesting contributions we've had from uh, Professor Maria Petnazidou and also Dimitris Sotilopoulos. Uh, and uh, above all, let me thank my LSE colleague uh, for his uh, marvelous uh, lecture, uh, Professor Tim Besley. My thanks to each of you. My apologies that we couldn't go through more of the questions that the audience have sent, uh, but um, I think we have uh, covered so many different uh, aspects, both in general and in the particular case uh, of Greece. You can see that you can find more information about our upcoming uh, events. And let me highlight one public lecture, public discussion, which is coming up uh, in January after Christmas. The title, Power and Impunity, what Donald Trump and Boris Johnson didn't learn from the ancient Greeks. And we have Professor Paul Cartledge of the University of Cambridge, my colleague, uh, Professor Michael Cox from the LSE, uh, Professor Joanna Hanink from Brown University, and my colleague, uh, Paul Kelly, uh, will be chairing that very interesting discussion. Thursday, the 28th of January at four o'clock UK time. And uh, we look forward to uh, joining us for that uh, as well. Full details from the Hellenic Observatory website. Again, my thanks to everyone concerned, including the backup support. And I wish you a good evening. Uh, and we look forward to uh, uh, engaging with you again in the future. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>